gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 10, the review segment for Friday, February 14th, 2014. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. And everybody who's on this podcast oh. with me, which includes oh. Drew McWeeny of HitFix, who has joined thank us. Thank you to- so much. Thank you for having us, uh, or thank you for joining us. <laughs> we Lord. love you. We love you. <laughs> we love you so much that I forget that I'm the one hosting this, not you. Well, I am, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Um, we wanted you to join us to review RoboCop, both because you've never been on the show before, and that's a shame, and because you, in your review of uh, the new one, you had this great story about the original RoboCop, which has kind of gone through these various phases of everyone thought it was crap and then everyone revived it as a classic and apparently lately there's been an attempt to say, ah, it was never that good to begin with. And uh, apparently when you were working at a movie theater when the first one came out, the reaction to that RoboCop was kind of the exact same reaction to this RoboCop where it's like, oh my God, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. How well, can that possibly be The hilarious. I mean, I, I, I have the poster and now, now that you know what the movie is, it's like, <laughs> hey, oh my God, look, there's the RoboCop poster. But at the time... It was just the shot of him climbing out of the car and the tagline, part man, part machine, all cop. And it was perhaps the least confidence-inspiring poster I think I've ever seen. And (laughs) we made fun of it. We laughed about it. And then I, uh, because I would build prints up and show them to employees about four or five days early, we screened it on a, I think it was like a Tuesday night. And it was one of the few employee screenings we've ever had where at the end people said, can you play it again? Nice. Because we lost our minds. Like, that came out of nowhere. And I, assume, I assume that was at, like, 2 a.m., though, because yeah, exactly. aren't, aren't the middle of the night screenings, like, yeah, way, way late at night? Yeah, the moment we closed, we would put them on, and it didn't matter. It was one of those things where just the energy in the room – there were a few really magical moments where because at that point I wasn't a critic and, and – you really didn't see movies early that often. For employees, it was that one chance to kind of have a few days where you had a secret and you would tell people, oh my God, what's about to happen? And that was one of those that summer that just blew people's minds. And I, I think it was the oh my God level of violence, which even in the 80s, that film felt like it was truly dangerous and excessive. And uh, and just the wit of it, the fact that it was genuinely smart and funny and took everything you imagined a RoboCop film would be and subverted it completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I do think Verhoeven, despite the fact that it is so nakedly satirical, I think he finds a soul in it. I, I think the one moment where he marches through the house in the original film kind of does everything they spend the entire new movie doing with Abby Cornish, and it does it right. in one silent sequence. It, it has a human element. It just pops more in the original. Yeah. This one is the through line for no, some I, reason. I think you got to give credit to Weller. Wearing a suit like that is a nightmare for an actor with part of your face taken away. And uh, he manages to make make it both, uh, I think, a little sad and enormously funny at times. And he acts through that suit like it's not there, which I can't, I, I can't even quite quantify how he does it. I think that's Verhoeven. I think that's Verhoeven working around it and, and I think it's also setting up the suit in these scenarios. It helps that you have Botine design something that gave the actor room to, to work. Right. 
Um, Drew, I think you went into this RoboCop with a with an open mind, which I'm glad because I feel like a lot of people weren't going to. And I think we can all agree that there is something on its mind, but it's really not a satire. And, and in a way that would have been kind of Ooh. dumb for them to try. I, I wouldn't call it a satire. I, I, I would disagree. You but think it's a satire? I do, but in like a way that it's very interesting that this um, RoboCop seems to working to be working against itself in some ways. It I I feel like. Um, Oh God, Jose. Um, what, what is? Yes, uh, uh, Jose Padilla seems to be working against the movie in some ways. Like, bat. I, I can see him battling the studio within RoboCop because this is a movie about blockbuster convention. It's about how these types of movies, the RoboCops that might be made in the eighties, um, seem to be impossible to make. In in the contemporary setting, and despite him wanting to make a movie about drone technology and and marketing and what it mean and commercialism in the modern setting, he's trying to battle that, and yet he has to um, fold to the conventions of the contemporary superhero movie. In some, it's ways. tough because you can see that. I mean, he's a smart guy anyway. I mean, you look at the two Elite Squad films, not just as international action films, but in the context of when they were released in Brazil, no one had ever put a scene in a movie before in Brazil where the government was shown as corrupt or where somebody on screen who was a government official took bribes or did something illegal. And not only does Jose show that in his movies, but then he has cops break in and beat the crap out of those guys. And when people saw that in Brazil, they tore theater seats up. It was crazy, the response. And I think for him, he is a social commentator. He is somebody who – I even think when you compare him to Verhoeven, there's a very similar skill set that they both had before they came to this movie. The difference is Verhoeven was working under the radar and managed to make this film away from scrutiny, where Padilla is working on a film where you can tell the studio wants a franchise out of this, right. toys out of this. They would yeah. like this to be a safer product that they can sell. And yet Padilla is trying to make movie about propaganda and about the use of selling an image versus what the image actually is. And you can see him wrestling with the script that he had to work with. And I, I can tell you, having read it, he made significant improvements to the script. He wasn't able to, to com completely throw it out. But he did fine-tune it, and there is a greater sense that he was trying to say something. Well, what I think is so interesting about this movie is that he he has commentary on the modern blockbuster. I mean, in, in a very direct way, in my opinion. Um, they talk about RoboCop, the actual entity, as a blockbuster movie. I mean, he's the kind of guy who's made in China and he's shipped over here and despite his flaws, we're going to make as many as we can and uh, we'll dress him in black and he'll look cool. Uh, and, and, and I think that's very interesting to contend with what this movie has to be in order to be a blockbuster and it has to have a big action scene at the end, which makes absolutely no sense in the context of the film. Um, the one with the and, night vision or the one on the roof or both? No, the night vision actually really works for me. Um, uh, which I, I mean, we'll we'll get into this more perhaps, but uh, by the end, it's it's blowing out as a big blockbuster where RoboCop fights robot. Oh, like in the monsters, the essentially. Yeah, uh, yeah and which fits, it doesn't fit into the context of this film. It doesn't work. This movie's conclusion doesn't make sense with the way that the movie is setting up, uh, which it's playing out. But in the end, it's about how. 
Padilla wants to make a movie about these blockbuster films, and now they all have to be conventional. But in the end, he fails because this movie has to be a blockbuster in the conventional sense. I think it's less about uh, movies. You're reversing it. It's that we make movies here and ship them to China, not the other way around. When it goes in the reverse, it's just about products. Like I think it's really. I mean, it can you can read it as being about blockbusters, but I think it's more just about straight up consumerism. I don't. I mean, I get that there are some nods to that, but I don't think it's as much as much of a direct reflection on blockbuster filmmaking as you're me, as you're assuming it is. Let me ask you this, Katie. What happens in this movie? Will you give us a rundown of what actually happens in? RoboCop 2014. Oh, like very little. Like a man is turned into a RoboCop and then he doesn't, <laughs> he's not happy about it. And then he fights again. He eventually gets the idea, like maybe tw- 20 minutes before the end, he starts thinking that he's going to fight back against Omnicorp. Like before then, there's that weird red herring gangster guy. You kind of, like, He's dispatched with so quickly in that night vision scene that it kind of. That's, and that's one of the weirdest moments in this entire film is the idea, because they have no bad guys. Uh, Michael Keaton barely qualifies as a villain in the movie. He's because just he's amazing. Yeah, like in the last five minutes, he's painted as a bad guy in order to really shoot him. To turn it up to justify <laughs> shooting him. But I wish that was a spoiler. Like that's not obviously someone needs to die and it's going to be yeah, Michael Keaton because we know he's like a bad corporate entity throughout the movie. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that he's going to become the end the enemy in the end but well, he's not an enemy throughout Robo the entire Cop. film yeah, yeah. They, and and they make this they make the the weird mistake of the the main bad guy the one who actually ordered his death who was the guy that he and his partner were investigating they dispatch him in the dark yeah literally they kill him off screen because he's that anonymous and generic a bad guy he you look at the original film, and I'll, the one thing you have to say for them is, oh my god, are those villains memorable? Clarence Boddicker is a phenomenal bad guy who enjoy, relishes every horrible thing he does in that film. And then you have Dick Jones, who is perhaps the most loathsome corporate greedhead of the 80s. And even Miguel Ferrer, who is kind of not the bad guy, is just a scumbag who ends up pissing off a bigger scumbag. Like, it's a fascinating rogues gallery in that first film. There's not one villain in this movie that makes a strong impression. And I almost wish, if they weren't going to do that, that they had gone further with what Gary Oldman's character was, which was a genuinely decent scientist whose work gets perverted. And they don't really go far enough with that. Like, I like the introduction, and I like the notion of what he's working on and why, and he lets himself be co-opted so easily that there's no real struggle to it. Yeah. And he's got the, the, like the female who's his assistant, who's kind of fighting against it, but she's such a non-existent character that you don't really feel that struggle from her side either. Everyone, everyone folds. You got it. You got to write the characters first and then give them the, whatever purpose they're serving. Like you see the notes that, that were given to, okay, well this guy's got to be bad. This has to happen. But they never (laughs) fleshed them out enough for us to, to get excited about watching it all unfold. Yeah. It it was a bizarrely banal movie. Like just things happened and I didn't seem very invested in them, though I, I can't really say that they're bad. I mean I, I, I enjoyed watching I mean Joel Kinnaman is a very fine actor. He and, is and, and I even, can say the, the moments where they yeah. dis 
assemble him are very striking oh, visually and very haunting. I could not watch m- many of them. I couldn't handle watching You don't like his- seeing Joel Kinnaman's face and a pair of lungs it's, breathing? Yeah, those lungs it's, breathing were too much for me. It's, But, I mean, it's quite an image, and it's very it arresting, and, and that is Jose's. That is not something from the original. So there's a notion of something that, okay, here's a great idea, and we can play with this, but they don't really get into the notion of how he's then being programmed to believe he's in charge. That's a oh, great yeah. idea that barely no. gets served in this film. The well, notion of free will being lifted completely out of him, but him having the illusion of it. What a what a totally different take than the first film. Yeah. And yet, barely it's, dealt with. Yeah. I wonder if there was such a big deal about this movie's rating at first. You know, there's that thing where they went on the set and Joel Kinnaman was like, it'd be so stupid to have a PG-13 RoboCop. And of course, this is a <laughs> PG-13 RoboCop. I mean, I don't know that there's anything in this that would have really benefited from having an R rating. Like it isn't about hyperviolence the way that the original was. Um, Drew, having read the script and, you know, followed this development more closely, do you feel like that PG-13 is any of this damage that we're looking at? Well, here's here's the weird thing about the rating. And I, and I come at this from two directions. First, just as a, a fan of the original, you can't compete with the hyperviolence. No one's going to let you. So you kind of have to do your own thing and tell your own version of the story and realize you can't compete with Verhoeven. Although has- I know I must say that this fan version of RoboCop that's been circulating where RoboCop steps into a gang fight where he just shoots dicks off. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm impressed. And that's, that that's like the fun of people reacting. But still, you're reacting directly to Verhoeven. It becomes a game of one-upsmanship, which is very, very difficult in a studio system. My biggest problem with the rating here as a parent is I don't think it's any less violent just because it's not bloody. It's not bloody, true, but literally every single problem in this movie is solved by shooting someone to death. I agree with you. I'm disturbed. I'm disturbed by RoboCop shooting people with um, shock, you know, what technology, whatever, whatever's uh, tasing them. I mean, it's just as disturbing because he has no consideration for these people. He's just tasing them, and they're falling to the wayside. He doesn't care about people. He's just accomplishing the mission in some way, which doesn't always fit for the character. They they made the mistake of really by, – by going for the PG-13 and very publicly pushing for it, they made the mistake of sending the the message that this one's more okay for young viewers – I would really argue that it's not. And I, and I have a real problem with this PG-13 game that's going on right now with studios. And you know, I had one director explain it to me that when they talk to you about the rating, they will tell you over and over the difference between an R and a PG-13 is how wet it is. Mm-hmm. The black. Um, although the way you can get around that is if you have an alien and it's black blood, then fine, make it as wet as you want. So it seems to me a game of semantics rather than really giving a shit about protecting parents or informing them of the violent content of a film. The PG-13 for this is the same as a PG-13 for something that, like, maybe you have a cigarette in it. And Mm -hmm. that's the entire reason for the rating. It's a failure of the system again. This is – we get back to that same thing where they claim it's for parents – but nobody, no parent is being served by this or the Lone Ranger being considered a safe PG-13 rating. This. 
The other problem I run into with the gun violence, and agreeing with everything you were just saying, Drew, is that there are so so many gun battle scenes that get really dull. I I always think it's really hard to make a gun battle scene exciting. And there's the one where he's in the warehouse, kind of the scene where it introduces the idea of him thinking he has free will. And it's just him knocking – it's like clay pigeons. He's just knocking down fake robot after robot, and it's so boring. And it it doesn't really – the gun battles don't ever really get exciting. Well, I think gun violence in general, it's, you know, one of the, um, uh, without launching too far into this other film, one of the reasons that I, I was intrigued by the moment guns show up in the raid too is it totally changes the dynamic of the movie and you realize, yeah, guns really aren't to be screwed around with. Right. You can, you can be the or best. Or any control. sort of weapon. I mean, yeah. when you bring up raid two, it's like, even when you pull a blade out in raid two, and this is a film I don't like. It totally um, it's it's violent. Dynamic. It's it's yeah. it feels bad. It feels like violence. And, and really in RoboCop, no sense of that in, in RoboCop, nothing. guns are just they make a lot of noise and people fall down. Yeah, I I think we're at a point in this country where that conversation is important enough that maybe we should consider how we handle them in films. And if you're going to make a film that is nonstop gun mayhem, well, okay, I don't mind. But earn it. Like, really you th- show me you th- what a gun does. Do you think that RoboCop actually comments on that? Is Jose actually saying something about that despite the forces of studio filmmaking working against him in this way? Is he is he cynical when he makes RoboCop? Is he saying that, like, look at all this shit that's going on um, and how carefree we are with it and how these people who are running Omnicorp are just like, this is marketing. You know, put these guys in the field and show them killing people. And if they're bad people that they're killing, then we win. I, I, I end up playing devil's advocate in some way to this movie because I think it has an ambition to be something more than the typical blockbuster. I mean, it makes fun of Transformers, which I can really get behind. <laughs> um, and it makes fun of The Dark Knight. It makes fun of, like, Paint It Black. Let's be intense or whatever that means. I, I uh, do. I, I wish that he had been able to develop his own version of the script because I think he came on late enough in the process that it becomes a it becomes more about how can i smuggle in the things that i'm interested in but still make the studio feel like they got the movie they paid for it it just feels to me it it feels like the performances end up prevailing in that way like joel kinnaman is good enough to make this movie interesting abby cornish is actually interesting despite being totally underwritten as the wife character who wants her husband back personality at all it's hard. She's I mean, she's got a thankless role. In I this like movie. Abby. Thankless, Kirsch, but I wouldn't. But I wouldn't call still her good. I don't. I mean, she's fine. I like. I I like her a lot, but I don't think there's anything for her to do at all here. But I mean, I, that's what I'm saying. I think that her her role is really underwritten and and despicable almost in this script. But I think that the work that she does is so enjoyable. I just want her on screen. More. I want to see her pine for her husband back. And I, every time she is on screen, I like I understand her plight, and I think that's really profound in some I ways. I wish they they pushed the the notion more of her reacting to knowing that the thing that they're selling isn't what her husband was or what he meant as a cop. And I think mm. we need to see more of who Murphy was and how he dealt with things for that to pay off. Yeah, we um, we really don't see enough of him 
pre-accident, no, part- pre, pre-explosion. Boy, do I feel bad for... It's Michael K. Williams, Michael right? Michael K. Williams, yeah. God, man, is he stranded. Do you feel How like many times was- does he get shot in this movie? Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> despicable. Four. Do you oh. feel like there was more of that? There, there was no. more pre-explosion stuff? Because, I mean... Well, I, mean, I, I don't think he's not so. that big an actor, but it does seem like if you're going to bring in Michael K. Williams, you want him to do something. Um, not really. They're, they're, they really didn't develop Lewis. It felt to me like that was a case of you cast it and you hope he'll somehow elevate yeah. what he's been handed. <laughs> Please make this into something more than I was able to put yeah. on the page. That, that happens. Um, I, I certainly it definitely does. Although... You know who did it is Jay Baruchel, who I thought was delightful. Wow, really? Yeah, I really liked him. I mean, he didn't. The character doesn't really exist, but he's really funny in a role that could have not mattered at I all. Agree, I agree with you mostly because you know Keaton Baruchel and and Jennifer L. Is that is that how you say L? Yep. Really, it's L. Smart people and smart actors, certainly. Such good, such good dynamic. You know, you could see them. It's like, it's almost like a sketch. It's almost like an internet sketch where marketing people are deciding over something superfluous. Yeah. Um, I mean, their stuff is so funny and so rich. There's an entire movie there, and they're not bad guys. That's what's really interesting to me, that they make I, a I lot they, of sense, and then well, yet they, they have to be bad guys by the end. Because there's people have a sense right now, in corporate America especially, that the marketing people – I think are kind of monsters. I, I do find most American marketing just insidious and grotesque, and I, I really don't like the way they get into. That's it, Drew. I'm going to send you 18 other Vampire Academy emails right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I think that there's a lot of times where the product that is being made is almost at odds with how the marketing people then seize on it and use it. And you know, living in a world where where companies like Apple run everything and make everything that we own at this point. Um, it would be interesting to see that clash between Oldman's character and between the marketing team and to watch them really butt heads over what the product is. Um, and again, all of that could be brand new. Not as Verhoeven's movie. And all of it was ripe and laying right there if they just pushed further. We're all basically suggesting a version of Robocop in which there are no action scenes at all and it's just people in boardrooms talking to each other. But those are <laughs> the best actually scenes the weird, in this movie. That's the weird part about this movie. Not a lot of action. No. Yeah. That's yeah, so strange. Filming, it will disappoint people who just go looking for the mayhem this week. You would, you would think, though, that if you're going to remake it and not consider the, the social politics or whatever, that there would just be a lot of explosions and a lot of mayhem. And there's, yeah. there's not. What happens in this movie? <laughs> I'm now recollecting it. I'm just like, nothing, nothing really happens in RoboCop. I, you know, I walked out of the theater imitating a scene from the film where um, Joel Kinnaman's character, Murphy, uh, Skypes with his wife <laughs> on, on, a, on a computer. And um, like the way they frame it is that it's behind his shoulder. Abby Cornish is on the computer, and in between them is a f- is a picture frame of their son doing the Kmart pose, <laughs> a, like head on fist, kind of like ah, oh, I can't even. Please like it's like head, tweet like me if you want to see me a cheek. picture of me doing this because I will do it for money. Um, for I just money? think it's so hilarious. I I couldn't stop laughing. Nothing happens in this movie in that moment to find it for me. That, well, there's just a lot of moments like that where they seem to have gone for the cheapest possible route to. Express something like you can see actual Toronto skyline in the background, even though it's supposed to be Detroit. And there's just like another action yes. sequences feel kind of f- like 
phoned in oh, in the, the same Omnicore way. Oh, the Omnicore lobby. If you're from Vancouver, that Omnicore lobby will make you laugh your ass off. <laughs> Wait, I thought they filmed in Toronto. Uh, Toronto, I mean. Because that's a stadium that everybody's been to. Yeah. And that, that lobby is enormously recognizable. So, yeah, yeah it's it's pretty great. I, I do have a real fondness for movies where they use a location that anybody who lives in that town will not be able to watch with a straight face. Yeah, it's very... Uh, I haven't seen anything be so blatantly Toronto in a long time. So, you know... <laughs> High five to them. That's fine. Um, I think Detroit deserves better in general. They built. They have a statue for RoboCop, or at least they're in the process of building it. And, oh, and, uh, and Detroit's an amazing sky. It is a unique and amazing skyline. Yeah. You really can't go wrong using Detroit as Detroit for God's I know. Sake. I know. And plenty of movies are filming. I mean, they do like like CGI in the Detroit skyline, but... Look, if real steel can risk it, Robo, <laughs> RoboCop the remake should be able to go, <laughs> um, go there. For us to wrap this up, I think... What's this movie has engendered more conversation than at least something like the Total Recall remake from last summer, which just I don't even oh, remember. Definitely. I remember nothing about it. And I mean, can it's we sum up? It's a video up, game. Like for anyone, Total Recall 2013, 2012. When did it come out? Uh, 2012. Who cares? It's um, a video who game. Cares? It stinks. Um, but like, I mean, aside from people who want to go see a bunch of action scenes, which we've established isn't really there, should anybody go see this? You know, I, it's funny because uh, my my editor Greg Elwood he was a little he was a little taken aback that I didn't enjoy it more. I think he was surprised that it was kind of creepy and that there was some character stuff that he liked and that he had a reaction to Kinnaman. I don't think if people go and they want a science fiction movie that's called RoboCop and they kind of know they're not getting the original, I don't think it's awful. I don't think it's a bad film. I just think it's a film that is very frustrating because of the choices they made. And I think ultimately, yeah, like you said, it's not the Total Recall remake. It's not the kind of film you're going to walk out of irritated that it merely exists. <laughs> More than anything, I think you'll look at it as a missed opportunity. Is oh my God, well, what if they had done this? What if they had gone further with that? What that story had been what they focused on? And, you know, for me, that's in some ways almost, almost more irritating because they missed what they kind of had. I mean, I mean, I tend to agree. I don't really know who this movie is for. It's not for action junkies. This is not a Transformers revamp of, of RoboCop, and it's not a thoughtful film as much as it could be. Um, I, I wish – I mean, I love that this movie decides to make a point about blockbusters. It's very subversive. And it speaks to nobody but me as a culture critic, I think. Um, I <laughs> and mean, a critic really, of Kmart poses. Yeah, I mean, as someone who loves little kids <laughs> leaning over on their fists and making a cute smile. Uh, no, that's really <laughs> sick. Um, I, I just don't see who this movie is reaching necessarily or at least provoking, which I think is the important part. Um, I really like Joel Kinnaman as an actor, and I like him in this movie. I think he really works even under the mask. I think he works. And he, and Abby Cornish, as you mentioned, Katie, um, is an actress who is undermined and um, underappreciated and someone who could do a lot more than she gets in this movie. Uh, and even Gary Oldman is, you know. Yeah, whatever. Gary Oldman Ga can go cash all the paychecks he <laughs> Gary Oldman is good in this movie. <laughs> I mean, Gary Oldman's good in everything, and he's still, like... There's so much more that could be happening in this film, and it just feels like the potential is it being reached in Robocop, which is infuriating. And we end up reaching a lot of these moments where 
critics are not aligning with audiences and that sort of thing. But I don't know. I, I just feel like this movie is flying under the bar in some ways. So, so in short, go see Winter's Tale. <laughs> oh, my God. Pegasus is... It's winter fall. Red skies are gleaming. Oh! Seagulls are flying over. Swans are floating by. Smoking chimney tops. Am I dreaming? Am I dreaming? For those of you who plan to uh, pay to see Robocop and then seek into Winter's Tale, which I know is so many of you, uh, Patches and Drew, is this the worst movie ever made? Wrong. I, I actually don't understand this criticism of Winter's Tale. Okay, so I... Do you think it's a good movie? The last time I saw Rotten Tomatoes as of this recording... Winter's Tale has 5% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, I know this is not a good joke. Very generous. Of, yeah. very <laughs> well, generous. Okay, now we're going to contend. Now <laughs> I'm going to pull my old-timey 1916 blade out, and my face is going to rip in half, and I'm going to rip yours off, and I'm going to paint blood. No, um, this actually happens in the movie, which is why I'm describing it. I think Winter's Tale is going to be written off as a, as a failure, um, unnecessarily so. I think it is a very romantic movie, and I think I appreciate um, Winter's Tale. I appreciate the idea of Winter's Tale. I like magical realism. I like romance, authentic, uh, and and I like everything it's striving to do. I'm sure this – I want to read this book, Mark Halpern's oh, book I, from 1983. I'm dying to read it now because – the the adaptation seems so botched um, by Akiva Goldsman, who is apparent. This is his passion project. I oh, think he's yes. been working on it for maybe fifteen years. Um, I can't speak to that necessarily. Maybe Drew has more insight to that. But uh, this is something he's wanted to bring to screen for a very very long time, and I, it is a failure. It is a failure of a movie, and <laughs> I admit that. Um, but there is something to be gained here. There are Pegasus, Sis. There are Lucifer. There are um, Lucifers. No, no, there were just one Lucifer. I just wanted to make it <laughs> ambiguous. Um, there are people flying into the sky as stars and they are dying. Who cares what the fuck is happening in this movie? There's very <laughs> genuine romance and I can appreciate it on that level. I don't know. Drew. I think it is by far the the weirdest kitchen sink movie I've seen in a long time. Beyond Labor Day. It is. It is manic in how awful it is. It, it's one of these movies that five minutes into it, I started to get nervous. And then each new idea that is introduced and each time they layer in a new level of magic and they suddenly reveal that devils run New York and Lucifer lives in a sewer and wears Jimi Hendrix T-shirts. and Naturally. It's, it's – the more you describe the particulars of what happens in the movie, the more people will think you are exaggerating to make it sound bad. Yet I could literally just go through and tell you point by point what happens and you would think I'm kidding. It's a Mad Magazine version of a giant romantic epic. <laughs> he has genuinely no idea how to play tone. And this movie from the – and look, the, there's wonderful people in this. I Jessica – Brown Finley, who I don't know at all from Downton Abbey because I'm not a, I haven't seen the show. 
This year I've had two moments. The guest at Sundance where I, I was introduced to Dan Stevens for the first time, and now I think he's like a super weird, pimped-out Terminator. I am, and, I am with you. I, I, am, I don't know these people at all. Oh, and she is charming. The camera loves Wonder. her. Yes. But it is the worst craziest version of unearned love possible. Hey, I saw you in a see-through nightgown. I'll love you forever and live until I'm 400 because of that. It there's, <laughs> works for me. That happened to no. me. <laughs> I don't mind magical realism. I like, in fact, I'm putting up a piece tomorrow about, because so, somebody asked me, well, what magical realism do you like? And there are plenty of examples. Field of Dreams would be a great version of a movie where I don't need to know why it happens. I buy it. I buy that thematically the magic pays off. I, I get everything I need from how they explain it. I don't need to know the mechanics. Right. I don't need mechanics in Winter's Tale. I just need the feeling that there isn't a deranged seven-year-old who had <laughs> 17 pixie sticks who's throwing screenplay terms into a folder with no idea of what any of them mean or how they work. And when you when you listen to Akiva talk about it, the first thing he did was cut 500 pages from the book. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. Right. There are many just characters right away, just not cut. make the final cut. Wow. But yes. what's and, interesting and, to me, what's interesting to me is that like if the if the movie version had come out in 1984, like a year or yes. two after this book had come out, would it have been like Legend, really Scott's movie, or um, uh, Never Ending so, Story? He was the person that was going to write it. Who who was going to write it? Melissa Matheson was attached, and and if you That's look at perfect. her work on The Black Stallion or E.T. or Indian in the Cupboard, what Matheson does well is she introduces a sense of unreality to a very real world and makes it feel grounded. Matheson's great at what she does, and I think she might have been the perfect scribe for something like this. This needs to accept is its fantasy a little bit more and then and then gloss over it in some ways. Like, it, it, it yeah. writes its fantasy off. It, like, is not concerned with the fact that it's bringing up fantastical elements for some reason <laughs> it can just have a guardian angel who is a dog but a horse <laughs> wait it's a dog uh, and a horse he's a dog <laughs> and a horse okay um Although and that's not important dog, they just keep calling him a dog <laughs> he's never actually a dog in the film but they keep calling him the white dog even though the horse with wings you guys are making me want to see this movie it's it's oh no it's, i wish truly has to be witnessed before you can <laughs> write it off it's that's, that's the thing i don't think it's as bizarre as it sounds like maybe <laughs> maybe one of the characters is wearing a Jimi hendrix t-shirt despite it being 1916 maybe he's lucifer maybe i won't give away the cameo despite everyone knows it out knows it's out there and he's reading uh, a brief history of time oh my god <laughs> wait really 1918 <laughs> 1916 <laughs> i mean i do respond well to like you have to see it to believe it and I kind of like I'm skeptical being like, oh, is this just what mean people said about Cloud Atlas? But it does sound like it is way worse. It's than Cloud, Cloud Atlas. Atlas made by somebody with no sense of how to balance tone. Oh, my God. I have a theory and I think maybe I'm going to write a book about this. I have a theory that dream projects are always awful. Ooh, I'm trying think to think of the, times, the counter example. But yeah, nine times out of ten, when somebody's been trying to make something for 30 years and they finally get there, it stinks. Yeah. <laughs> I just I, I it's funny that the fantasy in Winter's Tale is so horrible and yet I still really invest in Colin Farrell 
and the charm and the romance. Like it is lovey dovey, but I'm in, I'm into it. My like there's something got to be when after he gets his memory back, he gives himself the same shitty haircut he had in the early 1900s. <laughs> Shave <laughs> my no beard. Give me that day. waft. <laughs> yes. Other than I've remembered who I am. It's time to look like an idiot again. There are a lot of plot holes in Winter's Tale. I think there's something <laughs> to gain from the movie. I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. I, I have to say after all the YA dystopian future and like Lord of the Rings knockoffs, there's something to be, to be said about having Winter's Tale, what? like the idea of Winter's Tale out there. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Almost every new scene. Like I was so excited, but not necessarily <laughs> the way I was supposed to be. Uh, did, did Drew, did you see About Last Night? I did. What did you think of that film? I thought it was a solid. I it's. I loved it. I, I like what Leslie does with Mamet's script because oh my I, God, I, mean, yes. I know the play very well. I directed the play in college. I, I was oh, never. Oh, look at the director. <laughs> but it's one of those texts that, you know, at, a lot of it depended on the time when it was written. It was shocking because it was the 70s. It said stuff like that on stage before. And um, Mamet's play hasn't really aged very well. I thought what Leslie did so well was she updated it to now. And yet, it's not all about cell phones and Skype, and it's it's not overly hitting you with the fact that it's the 2014 version. I thought it was really honest. I thought the cast was good, and I thought they were just grown-ups wrestling with the problems that you have. It's There was no mechanic about it that got in my way and bugged me. I, I was shocked. I mean, I did not like Bachelorette that much, and yeah. I had a ball. With about last night, I loved it. Really I mean, nice. Job. I thought Steve Pink cast it well. I I really like the fact that they wrote it colorblind and they cast it colorblind. Yes, I I completely agree. I mean, obviously, a lot you know, Kevin Hart and and Michael Ealy and Regina Hall have a rapport already from Think Like, uh, a, Think like a Man. Yes, exactly. And uh, I mean that shows, but it's certainly not like I I. I think audiences see a movie like this and think it's a black film. And I'm going out there on a limb. You know, this is I'm, – I'm, I'm making a claim here. I'm sorry. If you want a real movie, it's that. Oh, my God. You got – okay. Just to like – just to wrap this up, give me two sentences on Endless Love. Fuck that shit. I mean I had a ball. <laughs> I loved it. I mean I was drunk watching Endless Love and like it's a future Rift Tracks movie waiting to happen. It is a spoof. It's the shell of an airplane type movie spoof. Um, and, and, but it's just waiting to be filled in with the punchlines. It's one of those movies where love is, is represented by montages and pop songs. That's like all the commercials. I've been seeing them yep. forever. It's pretty much exactly that, and if you know the book, prepare yourself because it is totally not the book again. This hmm. is the it's my, my life adapted it and totally missed the point. Is Alex Pettifer still completely charmless? Yeah, I don't. I, I still don't get it. I don't. I actually think he's quite good in the movie, and so is Gabriella Wilde. It's the script that is is an atrocity. I mean, it is a spoof movie. Boy, I do mean, I feel like an old man when I see Gabriella Wilde play a love scene. <laughs> <laughs> she's actually like slightly older than she seems, but by that I mean she's twenty-two. So. It's quite racy. It's, it's you know I'm having I'm having a real trouble with ages these days. Anyway, I can't get my head around the idea that Sarah Hyland and Margot Robbie are the same age. Whoa! <laughs> Nothing about that makes sense to me. Whoa! God, that's true, isn't it? Well, I think I think in Endless Love, I mean they go to Warp Tour. Or something like that. 
So that should tell you everything. <laughs> set in the 90s or are they just now? They go to, I mean, they're, the bonding moment in, in Endless Love is they go to a concert in a field and they take a bath together. I, I, I mean, it's atrocious. It's an awful movie. But I really, this, this, is, this is the kind of moment where I'm like, is a really terrible movie that I'm laughing at and talking through the whole time a, a good movie? And in the end, I like I dying to see Endless Love at one a.m. drunk off my ass again. So you'll have I, that opportunity really, on HBO in about six months. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to that moment. I don't know if that means it's it's good in quotes or not. Yeah. Well, I'm. I think after this very long rundown of the many movies this week, it's time to wrap this up with this week's lightning round question. Patches, do you have it handy? I do not, but I believe <laughs> that in honor of RoboCop, yes. what is your favorite movie, like, law enforcement cop situation? Uh, Drew, what is your pick? You know, I have to go with good old-fashioned, traditional American fascism. I love Dirty Harry. <laughs> I really do. I There is something about... I, I know that in the real world, we do not want our police to solve the problems the way they do on film. But man, when he's eating a sandwich and walking across the street and blowing bank robbers away, that is what I grew up thinking of the cop. And I still think he sets the bar very, very high as far as the iconic image of what American law enforcement looks like. But don't shoot guns. Don't shoot people, everybody. Just yeah, He's, a, he's a fascist. No yeah. doubt about that. Yes. Oh, but, but oh my God, is it fun to watch? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Looking at the answers from our listeners, Patches, did you have a pick? Yeah, I'm going to go with um, at Movie Dude 1893, a fine year. I believe that is Jake Bart, who said that um, Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard, the original Robocop uh, or Replicop, <laughs> if you prefer. I don't. Is that still open for debate? Has Ridley Scott closed the door on that discussion? Well, let's put it this way. When the screenwriters and the director disagree, it remains open for debate forever. (laughs) They did that just so you guys can keep debating about it forever. I I just read a wonderful piece on The Dissolve about how um, the writer of RoboCop conceived the idea on the set of Blade Runner, which seems to be a running theme. I feel like a a lot of people have come up with ideas while being on set of of Blade Runner, which, I mean, is obscene. Uh, I was just talking to Paul W.S. Anderson about uh, the writer of, of Blade Runner. Everyone comes up with more ideas from being on set of Blade Runner. Um, and, and, I, I don't know I don't know what the truth is, um, but I like Deckard being a robot. I think whether or not he's a replicant, he's he a good movie cop. Yeah, that? That's true. He does his duty. Yes. Um, if, it's, if it's about accomplishing your mission, he does it. I am going with Labuza movies, Peter Labuza, familiar face. Uh, Wyatt Earp and My Darling Clementine, if only for the way Fonda keeps saying barber. And I love My Darling Clementine. I watched it in my Westerns class in college. I love Henry Fonda in Westerns and Wyatt Earp. You can't go wrong with that guy. Can't. Right. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. Uh, We will be back next week with probably not quite so many movies to review, although eventually... uh, There's so many movies during Valentine's Day. It's not our fault. I know. No, it's good. And I'm I'm so glad that I let you guys talk about The Winter's Tale. Um, in the meantime, tell the people who you are and where they can find you online, starting with our guest, Drew McQueenie. Uh, Drew McQueenie, I am Drew at HitFix on Twitter. You can find me at HitFix, where uh, I run the motion-captured blog. 
and I am Matt Patches, rogue agent of the internet all across the interweb. And I, you can find all my work at mattpatches.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And I am Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. You are never stopping now. You need to drop it now. Drop it, drop it. Cause I don't want a robocop.